morning, America. We hope you had a nice weekend. A little discordant sound there, but it's okay. I'm Charles Gibson. I'm Diane Sawyer, and it's Monday, September 10th, 2001. Good to be back from the weekend. Yeah, it is. Nice to see you again. We got a lot of news this morning. There's a, uh, a... It's September 10th, 2001. After months of handshakes and kissing babies, tomorrow, September 11th, is primary day in New York. Voters will decide who should win the Democratic nomination for mayor. And the assumption is the Democratic nominee will go on to win the general election and become the next mayor of New York City. I'm sitting home, you know, feeling calm and excited, exhilarated. Mark Green is the frontrunner. The campaign is fundamentally over. The New York Times writes that Green is all but picking out the fabric for new drapes at Gracie Mansion. Republican Mayor Rudy Giuliani has been in control of the city for seven years, but his popularity is on the decline. Only about 40% of New Yorkers feel positively towards the mayor. His perception is especially bad in Black and Latino communities, who've been the targets of his tough-on-crime policies. I think as people see that the investment in making the city safer disproportionately is happening in poor communities, as it should, because that's where the crime is highest, unfortunately. Some New Yorkers want a fresh start. And that fresh start might be Mark Green. Mark Green was the standard. Mark Green was a progressive member of the city when it came to politics. Green's an obvious candidate, a cookie-cutter New York Democrat, white, progressive, Harvard Law-educated. He's been leading in the polls for months. And he's confident that his political destiny will manifest. And then I said the words, I think I'll win unless there's a big external event that disrupts everything. What the hell was that? It sounded like a plane crash. But the Twin Towers go down on primary day. What the city thinks about, cares about, dreams about, worries about, changes. Instead of Mark Green... New Yorkers turned to a little-known Republican billionaire named Mike Bloomberg. So what happened? Welcome to Newsweek on Air. The, the striking thing in the New York City mayoral election was that Hispanic voters went half for the Republican, something uh, I don't think they've done uh, anywhere in the country, and even black voters went a third for the Republican Mike Bloomberg. Uh, is this some kind of a momentous shift, or is this a one-time thing? Well, it's a shift, and it's a shift rooted in anger. And what's interesting is... With the help of black and Latino voters, Bloomberg will go on to be mayor of New York City for 12 years. Green becomes a footnote in New York history. Mike Bloomberg didn't beat Mark Green. Mark Green beat Mark Green. I'm Will Norris. And I'm Nevro. This is Shoe Leather, an investigative podcast that digs up stories from New York City's past to find out how yesterday's news affects us today. In season three... We're looking back at the headlines the day before 9-11. Before the sky fell and everything changed, we want to know what was happening in the city. September 10th is a warm, muggy day. It's about 75 degrees, overcast. That night, it rains. The next day, voters wake up to sunny skies. The polls open at 6 that morning. But two hours and 46 minutes later... The first tower is hit. The election is halted. This is Shoe Leather Season 3, the day before. You're listening to The Almost Mayor. It's a story about how our principles are tested in times of crisis. We're um, going to interview Mark Green. Um, what, What do you think we can expect there? I'm kind of excited to put an actual face to the research and and meet the man himself. Now more than 20 years later, we wanted to meet up with Green to ask what happened. We stopped outside an ornate stone building. It was grey, about eight storeys tall. It loomed over us. All right, in we go. The elevator opened into a large, airy loft with bay windows. It was sleek and stylish, the sort of unrealistic New York loft you might see in movies. Hello. 
Oh, let me put this on a boosted shot. He looked a lot like the Mark Green from Campaign Debates 20 years ago. The same piercing blue eyes and signature thick New York accent. But the grey hair had gotten greyer. He was both put together and disheveled. His shirt was creased and untucked. He alerted us to his... COVID-19 beard. He walked us through to his office and sat behind a large wooden desk. Each wall was filled from the floor to ceiling with books. And a few grabbed the eye. Memoirs of his nemesis Giuliani and his hero Ralph Nader, the progressive activist who Green considers his mentor. Nearby on the floor was a crumpled newspaper titled The Progressive Populist. Let me get two chairs for you over here. Great, thank you so much. Green grew up in a Jewish family in a wealthy suburb in Long Island. His mom was a public school teacher and his dad was a lawyer. Both were Republicans. But it was between Cornell and Harvard Law School as the Vietnam War raged that Green started to realize just how different his beliefs were from his parents. I got increasingly radicalized by the war. During an internship in Congress in the 60s, Green started a petition against the war. My effort ended not the war, but the intern program. Lyndon B. Johnson was president at the time. He was so angry about the petition that he actually suspended that internship program. Green was put on a list of the 10 most radical students in America. And, and that actually stamped me from that moment until this interview. I can't say I've much changed, slightly more gray, but my politics have always been very outspoken, aggressive, progressive. In 1993, Green became New York's public advocate. That's kind of like a watchdog for the mayor's office, sitting between the government and the public. When I was running for public advocate, I said, I'm going to devote my office to fighting for communities of color who have been often excluded in this campaign. The same year, Rudy Giuliani was elected mayor. I had been the number two citywide official, always fighting with the number one city official because he was, what's his name, Rudy something. The pair were enemies. I knew Giuliani as a worthy, if sneaky, adversary who kept trying to undermine me in ways budgetarily and politically that were unusual. And it was in this role as public advocate that Green would really make his reputation as a foil to Giuliani. In his eight years as public advocate, he'd sue Giuliani multiple times. And one area he especially focused on was the NYPD. We did a huge study. My dentist... So I did a huge study of all the times police had been uh, called out for being racially abusive and how often cops with substantiated complaints against them were punished. When I asked for data about it from the NYPD, Giuliani said, no way, I'm turning over any data to you. I sued and I won. Green is referring to a study that he led. It found that under Giuliani only a quarter of public complaints of police misconduct actually led to punishment. Now, it's important to take a step back here and understand just how Giuliani changed the NYPD. When he was elected in 93, crime in New York City was a major concern for many New Yorkers. That year, there were over 150,000 vehicle robberies. That's triple the rate of today. There were nearly a million property thefts. The New York Times described the Port Authority bus terminal as a grim gauntlet for bus passengers dodging beggars, drunks, thieves, and destitute drug addicts. And so Giuliani adopted a policing philosophy called broken windows theory. The, and the idea of it is you had to pay attention to small things. Uh, aggressive panhandling. The squeegee operators that would come up to your car. Um, the uh, street-level drug dealing, the prostitution, the graffiti... That's Giuliani, claiming that if cops catch the little things, the big crimes will stop. But police officers were disproportionately deployed to black and Latino neighborhoods. And he was also a big advocate for something called stop and frisk. 
That's a practice where police would stop and pat down anyone on the street they suspected might have weapons or drugs. To some blacks and Latinos, it's naked racial profiling, with them as the targets of an occupying force. Thousands stopped on the streets of New York because they look or act a certain way. Encounters with the blue and white... And black and Latino people were stopped by police constantly, far more than white people. Police records from this time show there were 16 black New Yorkers stopped for every one arrest. Almost every man you meet here tells of being stopped. I've been stopped in my car, I've been stopped in the back of taxi cabs. During his time as mayor, Giuliani's approval rating among black New Yorkers got as low as 12%. And so, when Green as public advocate helped bring greater accountability to the NYPD, it set him apart. He was one of the city's first elected officials to take on racial profiling in the police department. So, it's with this progressive record that Green runs for mayor in 2001. In the weeks leading up to the primary, Green is well-liked among black New Yorkers. Polls show two-thirds view him favorably. But then, in the closing days before primary day, September 11th, things start to change. Another Democratic candidate is surging in the polls. His name is Fernando Ferrer. He'd been the Bronx Borough president for more than a decade and was a familiar face in New York politics. He wasn't known as a fiery progressive like Green, but Ferrer's campaign is far bolder than others he'd run in the past. Here he is in an interview before the election. I'm talking about improving the relationship between police and community with uh, accountability that is clear and credible and transparent and a legislative end to racial profiling. But beyond that... We wanted to speak with him about his 2001 campaign. But we had no luck. He left our texts, many texts, read and unanswered. So we settled for videos of him instead. Somebody had to talk about the kids who were trapped in schools that were failing and couldn't succeed. To Ferrer, the problems for the black and Latino communities in New York go far beyond over-policing. Someone had to talk about the New Yorkers who didn't have a decent place in which to live at a price they could afford. The New Yorkers, one out of every four, who didn't have health insurance for themselves or their families. and had a way He argues that those communities had been left behind by the entire Giuliani era. So when he enters the race, he promises to be a mayor for what he calls the other New York. And the media runs with it. Ferrer cast himself as the champion of the other New York. That was widely interpreted to mean he was the candidate of blacks, Latinos, and the poor, groups that felt alienated in Rudy Giuliani's New York. Ferrer's messaging about the other New York is drawing on the discontent of many black and Latino voters, the voters who felt abandoned in the Giuliani era. He's bringing together these two groups of voters in a coalition, and to do this was pretty rare in New York politics. Historically, black and Latinos had not managed to put their differences aside to coalesce behind a candidate outside of David Dinkins. That's Roberto Ramirez, who was Ferrer's top advisor in 2001. Ramirez was a major figure in Bronx politics, and building this coalition of the other New York was his vision. He had already done it once back in 1989. Back then... He had helped get out the Latino vote for David Dinkins, who had become New York's first black mayor. I was lost. I couldn't find the building. I forgot where it was. We went to meet Ramirez at his political lobbying firm in the Bronx. Are these your people? Yes. Uh, this is the man, the legend, Roberto. Ramirez is a natural orator. Standing before us with silver hair and a blue suit, he's somewhere between a political lobbyist, a Pentecostal preacher, and a mischievous child. I love your accent, by the way. Oh, thanks. You're from London. Um, I thought you were from the Bronx. Sorry. <laughs> Please. Ramirez said he was so energized by the idea of New York electing its first Latino mayor, Ferrer is Puerto Rican, that he left his roles as the Bronx Democratic Party leader and state assemblyman to lead the Ferrer campaign. To Ramirez, 
This was a chance for Latinos to have real representation in New York. So the majority campaign of 2001 was not just a campaign. This was not just another majority campaign. This was a coming of age of an entire constituency. Ramirez knew that to bring together the coalition of black and Latino voters again, he needed to create alliances with black leaders in New York. Two events would help him do just that. First, there was the police killing of an unarmed black man in 1999. Here in New York tomorrow, four white police officers are going to be formally charged with murder for killing an African immigrant named Amadou Diallo. The four policemen shot at him 41 times, and he was unarmed. The killing set off a storm of reaction, first against the police, but more particularly against the mayor, Rudolph Giuliani, who alienated the minority community by not taking its concerns about the police seriously. Or not Both Ferrer and Ramirez were arrested at those protests. So was the Reverend Al Sharpton. Sharpton was, and still is, among the most influential, unelected black leaders in the city. It took the death of the unarmed Amadou Diallo in that hail of 41 bullets to finally unite minority leaders here in their demands for equal treatment by police. Then, in spring 2001, Sharpton and Ramirez came together again. They went to Puerto Rico to protest the U.S. Navy's bombing exercises on a nearby island. They were arrested again and would spend a collective 130 days behind bars. By the time we come out of jail, skinny, skinnier, uh, beers, there's a real moment of magic in the city. Political scientists we spoke to told us that these two events helped bring together Black and Latino leaders in New York. But maybe the most unifying factor of all was Mayor Giuliani. By 2001, the racial bias of his policing tactics was clear. And it wasn't just in Black communities. Police overreach was also impacting Latinos. It runs rampant in both communities. It's a sheer experience of both Black and Latinos. And so, leaders from both the Black and Latino communities saw the value in coming together, and more and more Black leaders came out in support of Ferrer. Here he is talking at a conference a year later. The city's highest-ranking African-American officeholder, Carl McCall, who is now running for governor, stepped up early and supported me. And that began a movement toward a cascade of endorsements from the African-American community. Here's Ramirez again. We literally put together for the first time in the history of the city a coalition between the entire black leadership and Latinos, every one of us, saying we can articulate policy, we can have a narrative, we can make this city better. And we so as the primary approaches, with the help of Ramirez, Ferrer has his coalition and his message. Freddie's mantra and Freddie's argument was that there was a part of New York that has never been in charge of policy and that it needed to change and that he came from that community that was the other New York. And that other New York doesn't live in Wall Street. That other New York doesn't even have much say about anything that happens in city and state government. There is something Ferrer has that Green never will. He's part of that other New York, and Green knows it. Uh, I had one incident. I remember to this day, I was walking through Grand Central Station, and a, like a 20-year-old or so Latino guy sees me, comes up and goes, Hey, Green, I really like you, but, you know, Ferrer. <laughs> Meaning, hey, he, 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 he's me. I laughed. I said, I got it. That's cool. Ferrer's support in the Black and Latino communities has grown so much that by September 10th, Green and Ferrer are now even in the polls. And yet, after leading for so long, Green is still seen as the frontrunner. We'll give you the world. Good morning. 64 degrees at 8 o'clock. It's Tuesday, September 11th. I'm Lee Harris. Here's what's happening. It's primary day and the polls are open in New York City. Voters are deciding among about 250 candidates. For- Finally, September 11th arrives. Primary day. At 8.46, I had finished campaigning in the primary. And I turned to an aide and I said, okay, that's it, the primary's over, let's go. And then a woman who I happen to know, coincidentally, was walking south and I see her 
look up and exclaim in a way that I had never seen anybody do. Of the Northern Tower at the World Trade Center has experienced an explosion. There is smoke coming from the tower on the northern side of the Northern Tower. That smoke billowing out of the building in the upper floors. When you heard of the attacks and you saw the attacks happening, unfolding, did you see them first as a New Yorker, or were you were you seeing it through the lens of a politician that was running for mayor? My first reaction was, this can't be happening. It's election day. Voting in the primary stops, and Mayor Giuliani jumps into action. When the planes hit, he's only two blocks away, and he's seen covered in ash, comforting a police officer, and generally taking charge of the situation. If you're below Canal Street, you should walk out in the days and weeks afterwards, he becomes the city's cool, calm, and collected anchor amidst a storm. And very quickly, that reputation grows. For every single person touched by this unthinkable tragedy, there's been one man who, above all others, has been the beacon holding this city together. I know you want to hear from him. He's the man of the hour, a man whose extraordinary grace under pressure has led him to be called America's mayor. He's the mayor of New York City, Rudy Giuliani. Suddenly, Giuliani is a rock star. He receives upwards of an 80% approval rating among New York City voters. He's named Time Magazine's Person of the Year. Giuliani went from being a figure of Nixonian popularity to Churchillian over a 24-hour period. We know what that 24 hours was. Many white voters now love Giuliani, and that includes white Democrats. But there's actually an important racial distinction here. Public opinion of him remains much lower among some minority groups, in particular black New Yorkers. The primaries are finally held two weeks after they were supposed to. Michael Bloomberg easily wins the Republican nomination, but that doesn't really mean that much. As Bloomberg later said, even his mother doubted he could win the whole thing. But no one wins the Democratic nomination. Neither Green nor Ferrer were enough of the vote to get the nomination outright. So, they have to now face each other in a runoff. Democrats will vote again in two weeks to decide between the two. But the conversation totally changed, and it wasn't about police misconduct. It was about public safety generally. Ferrer starts to come under fire for his message about the other New York. To some, it sounds divisive at a time when the city is supposed to come together. But Ferrer doubles down on that message. Well, maybe the New York you live in is pretty good. But the New York a lot of other people live in isn't so pretty good. Here's Ramirez again. They ask him, Mr. Ferrer, Mr. Ferrer, are you prepared to change your campaign now and talk about how important it is to unify the city? And Mr. Ferrer says, uh, well, The towers may have crumbled, but my beliefs have not. Every mainstream outlet called Freddie racist, called Freddie divisive. Green goes in the opposite direction. He does start to change his message and focuses more on security. I have a plan in this new terrorist era, and if the police and firefighters are heroes before, on, and since September 11th, that put their faith in me, that I can best protect our families... And one of his biggest shifts is on Giuliani. I could run against uh, Rudy Giuliani, but it was hard to run against America's mayor. Of course, Green had made his whole reputation on challenging him. But he sees this Giuliani mania, so he stops criticizing America's mayor. As the runoff between Green and Ferrer gets underway... Giuliani is getting pretty comfortable with his new status as America's mayor. 
so comfortable that he starts talking about trying to extend his term in office by 90 days, something that has never been done before in New York City. This means completely sidestepping the democratic process. But still, a lot of voters are in favour of it, especially white voters, including white Democrats. So I get a phone call from uh, Mayor Giuliani's office. The mayor would like to see you on the West Piers where he is set up his office. I tell my staff, they meet me there, and uh, I'm then ushered into a you know nondescript room with Rudy, and both our staffs are kept outside. And Giuliani, this is one, said, Mark, let me get right to the point. Uh, we're trying to, you know, still see if there are any bodies to be found. Um, I'd like to ask whether you'd be willing to delay the runoff with Ferrer for 90 days so that I could have that time tacked on to the end of my term so we can, can complete the follow-up to this catastrophe. My first reaction was, quote, What? Apparently, Mike Bloomberg has already said yes. Now, remember, Bloomberg then was a underdog who really, 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 did I say really needed Rudy's endorsement to be competitive and viable? But Green needs a piece of Giuliani, too. Ferrer has his Black and Latina coalition, and Green needs an edge. Now he might be able to find it in this Giuliani mania. Here's political scientist John Mullenkoff. In order to win the primary, Mark Green tacked very clearly to the right in search of votes from the Giuliani Democrats, the people in southern Brooklyn and so forth who were conservative Democrats. And so to do that, here's where Green makes his first of several crucial decisions. This decision will begin the splintering of Democrats that will lead to Bloomberg's victory. He endorses Giuliani's idea. I called and said, okay, uh, delay it 90 days. If you tack on 90 days at the end of my term, should I win? But Green comes under fire. He looks like he lacks a backbone. A New York Post headline reads, Mark Green has fallen out of favor by extension and accuses him of getting tangled up in the, quote, Rudy factor. One person who remembers this is Reverend Al Sharpton, who, by this point, is a close ally of Ferrer and had endorsed him. When Giuliani asked to extend his time, uh, that all of us was outraged because, the first of all, it's against the principles of an election. Second of all, what are you suggesting? Nobody else knows how to handle uh, a crisis that they shouldn't be made. So it was a, it was a no-brainer that, no, uh, these are the times a new person comes in, that's that. We were stunned when Mark Green... You gotta remember, Mark Green supposed to be Ralph Nader's protege. I mean, these are the guys that enforce stuff like this. Stunned. Ferrer, on the other hand, refuses to endorse Giuliani's idea. Freddie said, to me, Mr. Mayor, I'm ready to be mayor now. I don't need three months, neither do you. Freddie looked like the statesman, and Mark Green looked like the political hack. Green soon acknowledges he's made a mistake. Actually, the Giuliani term extension never gets off the ground. It's blocked by state government officials. But for Green, it's hard to walk back the hypocrisy of his decision. I had been 10 points ahead of Ferrer in the first polls in the runoff. And I lost 10 points in a couple of days, and it became a tie race. Editorials say Green is now fighting for his political life. The cover of the New York Observer has an illustration of Ferrer as a roaring lion, and Green is cowering in the corner. So Green goes on the offensive against Ferrer. I scrambled, I hit Ferrer for certain foolish things he had said, like any candidate would. The runoff starts to get ugly. So, Freddie, it's okay to okay. change your mind. Mark, you can't change history. Mark, I am not going to let you distort my record. But now that you... Green implies Ferrer's focus on the other New York, on racism, is wrong. First, I want to say, 
I do like Freddie's personality. He was and is, and I think will stay charming. But he ran a us-them divisive campaign based on a theme of two cities. It puts Ferrer on the defensive. As he knows, when I talked about the other New York, the people who were being priced out of New York, people in overcrowded and underfunded schools, that is beyond race, beyond ethnicity, and beyond borough. But it... Green also changes his approach with Al Sharpton. They'd been friendly before the campaign, but now he's working to distance himself from the Reverend. We were discussing, though, the Reverend Al Sharpton. Um, and his role in Mr. Ferrer's campaign. I have no comment. Um, he solicited Al Sharpton's endorsement and won it. I did not solicit his endorsement this year and didn't get it. But Sharpton remembers that differently. We went to speak with him at his office in Midtown about his work with Ferrer. Okay. Right, up to the 14th floor. Yes, the left, as we call it here in America. <laughs> We were escorted into a small conference room with frosted-out windows. Um, There is a lot of Al Sharpton iconography on the walls. There's a poster of him with Barack Obama and some news clippings. And now we're going to wait for him to join us. And after an hour of waiting... Hi. Hello. Hello. Nice to meet you. Hey, I'm Neve. Hey, I'm Will. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Sharpton finally appeared in a crisp grey suit and a knit tie. He sat with his arms crossed. A gold ring sparkled on his finger. A.S., it read. He claimed that Green had pursued his endorsement earlier in the campaign. But then Green distanced himself. He had taken me and my uh, ex-wife, well, wife at that time, to a Broadway play with his wife. And then later said, no, 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 I didn't ask for his endorsement. Like, like we double date. And um, it became insulting at some point. Sharpton said for Green to distance himself this way was strategic. That's because Sharpton was hated by many white New Yorkers at the time. He was constantly criticized in the media for his blunt approach to activism. A journalist once called him the portly prince of provocation. He was a punching bag for tabloids at the New York Post, which called him a professional nutcase and a racial arsonist. Here's what the writer Peter Noel had to say. He was the race correspondent for the Village Voice at the time. Listen, Shopton was the boogeyman. The term wasn't invented yet, but Shopton Derangement Syndrome, SDS. That, that was the big thing because he was the man, he was the face uh, of, of, of the black activist movement and the ones that white folk loved to hate. Green knows distancing himself from Sharpton could help him appeal to those so-called Giuliani Democrats. He later admitted this during an interview with C-SPAN, claiming again that he never asked for Sharpton's endorsement. Sharpton is a double-edged sword. African Americans admire him. White New Yorkers hate him. There's a 60-point disparity in his poll ratings in New York. So I decided, you know what, I'm not going to ask for his endorsement Uh, because he's so unpopular with my voters, but I'm going to treat him with respect. Sharpton starts to become a focus of the race. Reporters and debate moderators grill Ferrer about his relationship to Sharpton, who by this point had endorsed Ferrer. Your relationship with Mr. Sharpton, Mm -hmm. that's the question. And, And how do you convince white voters of that relationship and what Mr. Sharpton's role might be in your administration? Well, let me tell you something. I don't feel the need to convince anybody about the fact that he hasn't, and it's a matter of the public record, asked me for a thing. Ramirez said it was becoming pretty obvious what was happening. His campaign thought that they could get away with chastising and using race against a man of color. At this point in our interview, Ramirez took off his jacket, sweat dripping from his brow. He cancelled his next meeting. Playing with the golden crucifix around his neck, he began to punctuate his sentences with a fist to the table. Ramirez remembered trying to reach out to Democratic Party leaders. I spoke to every one of them and I said to them, I am concerned that Mark Green's campaign is going to lean on race because I'm going to beat the shit out of him if he doesn't. And no one did anything. They could not believe that Mark Green would do that. It was impossible. How could you possibly have Mark Green, the paragon of progressive politics? 
Oh my God, that would never happen. Never. And then two critical events happen in the final days before the runoff election. Green's reputation with Black and Latino voters had already started to suffer when he endorsed Giuliani's term extension idea. But these events will ruin that reputation. First, racist flyers and automated calls start going out to white neighborhoods in Brooklyn. Flyers and phone calls flooded some white neighborhoods, alarming voters about the Reverend Al Sharpton's influence in a Ferrera administration. On the flyer that goes out is a cartoon that was originally printed in the New York Post. It shows Ferrer looking kind of pathetic and feeble. He's groveling on his hands and knees. He's kissing Sharpton's comically enormous behind. We actually found a copy of the cartoon, and it's really not very nice to look at. But no one owns up to it. And at the same time, anonymous automated phone calls go out to White households. They tell voters that if Ferrer becomes mayor, he'll hand Sharpton the keys to City Hall. Green denies involvement in the race-baiting campaign and publicly denounces it. I didn't know anything about that stupid cartoon. But Ferrer supporters are furious. They suspect Green's campaign was behind it all. Do you believe that Mark knew about the flyers? Yes. Did I answer quick enough? He was either the perpetrator or he acquiesced or he allowed it to happen. Here's Peter Noel again. New York is a dirty place in terms of politics, and people would do anything to win. And no one believed that he wasn't behind it in some, in some respects. He, if, he, if he knew about it and he couldn't control it, that's a different story. But he didn't say that. He just tepidly denied that he knew anything about what was going on. We're in a democratic primary and supposed to be fighting against this kind of bias and bigotry. And here is one of the two major candidates for the party's nomination uh, playing tricks that we would expect in Georgia somewhere. Once again, Green denies he ever knew about the flyers and automated calls. And at this point in the campaign, there's no hard evidence that he did. So, this mysterious race-baiting campaign is the first pivotal event at the end of the runoff. The second is an attack ad. The day before the runoff election, Green's campaign puts out a TV spot. It calls Ferrer borderline irresponsible. Take a closer look at Fernando Ferrer, a narrator says. Can we afford to take a chance? Ferrer's supporters say the ad is racist fear-mongering of a potential Latino mayor. He said he wouldn't do it. But now Mark Green's gone negative with ugly attack ads distorting Fernando Ferrer's record on everything. It's the dog whistle. They know. They know. The consultants know and the candidate know that when you say, can we afford to trust? Can we take a risk? What you're saying is that that person is different than you and that their interests are different than yours and that their motives are different than yours. Green maintains that the ad wasn't racist. I don't think you know who Antonio Villaragosa is. Antonio Villaragosa. He was then running for mayor of L.A. at the same time. He's Latino, and I had known him. And I sent him the ad and said, Antonio, is this a racial ad? He said, no. The Village Voice called it a matter of perception. One article wondered... Was the advertisement simply another negative ad, or was it a coded appeal to white voters' misgivings about the prospect of a Latino mayor? Was Green playing the proverbial race card, or was Ferrer playing it by saying so? The day after the ad runs is October 11th, Election Day, one month after the attacks. Green manages to hold on, and he wins the runoff. The moment was captured in a documentary about his campaign made by his son, Jonah. The racial divisions in the exit polls are clear. Green gets most of the white vote, and Ferrer gets most of the black and Latino vote. In less than a month, Green will go up against Bloomberg in the general election. But... Black and Latino leaders won't soon forget the events of this Democratic runoff. 
A few days after the runoff, Sharpton, Ramirez, and other Ferrer allies meet with Green for a so-called solidarity dinner. Green has said he wants to smooth things over, but it's not the reconciliation the Democrats hoped for. We ended up just about cussing each other out. And uh, Mark's attitude was, all right, tell me what y'all's beef is. And I said to him, I said, uh, Mark, you lied about you never asked for my endorsement. You took me to a Broadway play, da da da. You're a liar. And I think that uh, you've been cowardly in this whole thing uh, uh, around standing up on the flyers, standing up to Giuliani and all that. He sits back in his chair in an almost arrogant posture. He says, well, I've been a politician a long time. I've never to my face been called a liar and a coward inside of three minutes. So I said, well, let me make it easier inside of 30 seconds. You're a liar and a coward. And that was the tone of the meeting. This is supposed to be the meeting of reconciliation. He wouldn't give an inch. That's the kind of guy he was. So we said fine. According to both Sharpton and Ramirez, Green tells them, I do not need you to win. I need you to govern. That's what he said. I don't need you to win. I just need you to govern. So how many times do you want to insult people and, and expect that they just like, like okay, you, you're going to tell us you don't need us, but you want us to get the vote out? Green said he did say those words, but... Context counts. He said his meaning was misconstrued, and he was really just reaching out. The whole point was I'm here to beg you for support. And I'm here not because I couldn't win if you didn't support me. I think I could, but I don't want to find out. I want you to be part of my government. Finally, a week after the runoff, Ferrer endorses Green as the nominee. It took three face-to-face meetings in the last 18 hours for this to happen. Freddie Ferrer endorsing Mark Green as the Democratic mayoral candidate to face Republican Mike Bloomberg. Very proud to stand here and endorse his candidacy. On the face of it, this is a Democratic Party solidly unified. But underneath are still the lingering questions of who was behind the race-baiting tactics in the final days of the runoff election. Democratic leaders like Senator Chuck Schumer condemn the race-baiting. We saw at the end of this campaign, we don't know who did it, but we saw leaflets and phone calls that appeal to the worst instincts of New York and America. But Ferrer's supporters aren't ready to let this go easily. Green endorsed Giuliani's term extension idea. He attacked Ferrer. He distanced himself from Sharpton. And someone distributed those flyers. Maybe Green's campaign, maybe some stray supporters. The entire runoff had left a sense of mistrust in the black and Latino communities. Mark Green had built an, a reputation of being very progressive, very liberal. And uh, if he had not built that reputation, it would not have stung as much. Actually, it doesn't just sting. People are furious. Peter Noel wrote about it in the pages of The Village Voice. I described him as a Giuliani in the making for what he did, and I said that he is probably the most hated white man in the African-American community. And 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 I wasn't wrong. As the general election begins, the black newspaper, the Amsterdam News, is filled with editorials condemning Green. We look through old newspaper clippings, and the level of anger in these old editorials is pretty astonishing. One article says, when Mark saw that he was losing, he excited and frightened white New Yorkers to the point of rage and insanity. The victims of this rage and insanity were blacks and Hispanics. And this is from another editorial. Mark Green and his friends made a mockery of the democratic process by exploiting racism in a manner that New York and America have not seen since the days of the Ku Klux Klan. Where should we go? Go on the table, whatever, whatever, sure. whatever. Peter Noel lives in a brownstone in Harlem. Whatever is best for you. You guys are the producers here. <laughs> his apartment looks like it belongs in the Palace of Versailles. Oil paintings of fruit with intricate gold frames hung all around us. 
When we got to talking, it was obvious that he's still seething about these events 20 years later. Noel told us that for decades, black voters had crossed racial lines to vote for white Democrats. Black people are always hoodwinked into voting for the people who appear to be progressive and wanted to do things for them, wanted to protect them from police, wanted to protect them from poverty and different things. But he said it's those same people who throw the black community under the bus when it becomes convenient. Mark Green was one of those people. He was a phony white liberal. He was coming for the vote. He seized on an issue that was dear to the hearts of the African-American community. Young black kids were being stopped in the streets, and very few white politicians were speaking out on that. Noel said Green compromised on his commitment to the black community through his actions in the runoff. Noel thinks he tried to attract white voters by attacking Ferrer and Sharpton. We saw his true colours. And Ramirez agreed. And he said Green made another big mistake. He assumed black and Latino voters were guaranteed. He thought that nothing, not even that attack ad where he called his Latino rival risky, would drive them away. It's the basic notion that there is no price to be paid if you screwed a minority politician. There's no price, because where are they going to go? And Sharpton told us Green wasn't the first Democratic candidate to act this way. The uh, real lesson from this for us is that many of the Democratic Party leadership and candidates just assume we have nowhere to go and they can do whatever they want with us. And we'll be there anyway. Because where are they going? They're not going to Republicans. They'll give them nothing. So we can abuse them. But they got to come home. they got nowhere else to live. But, as it turns out, Green's campaign was wrong in that assumption. That was their miscalculation. That we were just going to play along, we're going to roll over, and we're going to allow Mark Green to be mayor after he did that. We wanted revenge. The African-American community wanted revenge. And so it becomes bigger than Mark Green. For Ramirez and Sharpton, this is the moment to make a statement, to send a message to the Democratic Party. And so they decide to keep their distance. They don't publicly reconcile with Green or endorse him. They withhold support for Green to challenge this assumption in the Democratic Party that minority voters have nowhere else to go. And that's a pretty big deal because Sharpton and Ramirez hold powerful influence over black and Latino voters, respectively. We got screwed over politically, over and over and over, and it was okay, because the next day we'll cut a deal. The next day we will be back. And in this case, we made a decision. This is where we draw the line, and this is a lesson not to Mark Green, but this is a lesson to the future Mark Greens of the world. This is a lesson to the State Democratic Party. This is a lesson to us as a community. So now the focus turns to getting revenge. Black media leaders are determined to stop Green. By default, that means supporting the only other candidate, Mike Bloomberg. Influential DJs on radio stations like KISS FM start talking about Bloomberg as the only alternative. KISS FM led these other black radio stations in this revolt against Mark Green to influence black people to vote for Bloomberg. So uh, Bloomberg was the lesser of two evils. It was a revenge vote. Soon, the black newspaper, the Amsterdam News, endorses Bloomberg too. And yet, two weeks out from election day, Green is still polling 16 points ahead of him. But that gap is rapidly shrinking as Bloomberg pours his massive fortune into an ad blitz. In the final week of the campaign, suddenly it's pretty close. Michael Bloomberg was down, what, 38 points in June? I mean, now he's down four points. I mean, he certainly is gaining. Whether or not he's going to gain enough to win is another Then, a few days before Election Day, the New York Daily News publishes an investigation into the flyer incident from a few weeks before. The investigation uncovers a suspicious meeting, a meeting that looks a lot like it led to the flyers and robocalls. Basically, four of Green's staffers had met with a group of Democratic strategists during the runoff. This was at Nick's Lobster House in the south end of Brooklyn. They all talked about how they could highlight the supposed influence that Sharpton would have over a Ferrer administration, basically in order to alarm white voters. That cartoon of Ferrer kissing Sharpton's behind from the New York Post came up in the meeting. The same cartoon that would soon appear all over white neighborhoods in Brooklyn. 
It's not totally proven, but it now looks like Green's campaign was behind the flyers. The news is a bombshell this late in the race. And once again, Ferrer and his team are furious. I called him up on the phone. said, you've got a problem here. Ferrer wants Green to fire the staffers who were at the meeting. He declined to do that after six telephone calls. I could not fire two people and ruin them potentially. Because it would be in the front page everywhere when they denied it and I believed their denial. Bloomberg capitalizes on the conflict. Here he is in a debate with Green. Mark, um, the way the runoff turned out between you and Freddie Ferrer, isn't it time to say we're going to conduct, you should conduct a real investigation of what happened? Isn't it time that you apologize for the smearing of Freddie Ferrer saying that he was borderline irresponsible? Isn't it time to say enough that you should not have had or somebody should not have in your interest put out these disgraceful flyers and made those disgraceful calls? And will you promise right now to stop this politics of personal destruction that you seem to do every time you get close in an right, election? Uh, this is a man who said oh, two weeks ago he wouldn't raise these issues because it's racially divisive. So what's despicable... Democratic leaders see things spinning out of control. They decide it's time to step in. But not to investigate Green and this flyer incident. Instead, they throw a so-called unity dinner for Green. The event is hosted by none other than... A guy named Harvey Weinstein had organized it. He was very famous. 1,200 people cram into the Sheraton Ballroom in midtown Manhattan. The scene was again captured in Jonah Green's documentary. And John Stewart was the MC. Can I have some sort of honorary title? <laughs> the two Clintons were there. I'm looking forward on Wednesday morning to talking to Mayor-elect Green about coming to Washington to make the case for the aid that we need from the federal government. But Ferrer supporters are upset that the same Democratic leaders who disavowed the flyers a few weeks ago are now gathering to celebrate Green. Everybody give him a pass for the rest of my life. I would never give Mark Green a pass, and I would never give the leadership at the time a pass. It was wrong. To Ramirez, it felt like disrespect to Black and Latino voters. The Democratic Party never thought that they had a responsibility to a constituency just because they're part of the city. Ferrer doesn't show up for the unity dinner, and he actually reverses his endorsement of Green. Four days after that dinner, it's election day, November 6, 2001. We are briefly interrupting The Tonight Show with Jay Leno to bring you live coverage of the transition of power in New York City. Mayor-elect Michael Bloomberg about to officially become the city's leader. The outgoing mayor... Mike Bloomberg defeats Mark Green. The voting results tell the whole story. Nearly half of Latino voters and a third of Black voters go for Bloomberg. Both numbers are unprecedented for a Republican candidate. In all, 40% of Ferrer supporters cross party lines and vote for Bloomberg. Green's opponents put all the blame on him. Well, that's the result, the fruit of desperation, when you play the race and the fear card. Had he fired somebody, he might have been mayor today. Had he taken a stand, he might have won. Mike Bloomberg didn't beat Mark Green. Mark Green beat Mark Green. But that's only partially true. Sharpton, Ferrer, and Ramirez, they beat Mark Green too. Now, it didn't occur to me that they really would go on political strike and allow a Republican billionaire who had joined all-white golfing clubs to be elected mayor over a person who they knew was always on their side marching with them, uh, fighting police misconduct. But I was naive because the, the issue wasn't issues. It was power, racial power. 
Did you go on political strike? And, and, and if you did, what did that look like? I, 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 I did not go on a strike at all, even though I know it has been said that way. Mark Green believed that he was entitled to the benefit of my life's work, of Freddie's life's work, of, of Sharpton, of every one of us who worked so hard to get to this point. And he believed that, no, you have to ignore what happened and you have to help me. And then the presumption becomes, if I don't help him, I am on a strike. Uh-uh, I'm sorry, no. I didn't go on a strike. Electing Bloomberg had profound consequences for New York. Bloomberg was widely credited with the rebuilding of Lower Manhattan, but his tenure would represent a step back for racial justice in New York. He had massively expanded stop and frisk, even compared to the Giuliani era. The policy reached a fever pitch by 2011. That year, there were nearly 700,000 stops. Nearly 90% of those targeted young Black and Latino men. To put that in perspective, there were actually more stops of young Black men that year than the total number of young Black men in the city. And it wasn't just policing. Inequality and homelessness soared under Bloomberg. Conditions in public housing deteriorated. Those problems had a disproportionate impact on Black and Latino people. But Ramirez said he doesn't regret helping stop Green. I would have taken five more Rudy Giuliani's rather than one Mark Green. And I say to you that I have not had a better day in my life than on the day that I chose to enforce my ideals and who I am and the responsibility that I carried on my shoulders. If it was today, I would do it again and I would have another cigar. For Green, questions around the flyer incident lingered for years. In 2002, the Brooklyn District Attorney opened an investigation. And I said, I'm going to come in and you're going to put me under oath. And at the end of it, you're either going to charge me or exonerate me publicly. Four years later, he was finally found in court to have had no knowledge of the flyers. And his name was cleared. Green was surprised to learn Ramirez remains angry at him. He still doesn't think he did anything wrong. The way he sees it, only the flyer incident was overtly racist. And he was found to have had no knowledge of that. If he wants to make me into an ogre, he's going to have a hard time. It's great when you're accused of something and you have a completely free conscience. Because I didn't do anything. As we talked, Green was obviously tired of rehashing this story. I'm boring myself. I don't actually talk about this every day, you know. After 2001, Green never held elected office again. His ability to regain the trust of the Black and Latino communities was never really tested. But now the memory of 2001 is hard to escape for the man who was almost mayor. I dream about it occasionally, and I'll leave it to therapists to say whether dreams reflect psychology, and the answer is they do. But Ramirez doesn't want this story to die. He sees 2001 as a lost chance for representation that still hasn't been achieved. Today, Latinos make up almost as much of New York as white people, and the city council includes a growing number of Latinos. But still... No Latino has ever held one of the key citywide positions like mayor, public advocate or council speaker. Ramirez hopes this statement they made 20 years ago will someday change that. There ought to be somebody in the future that looks back to 2001 and there will be the new mayor that got elected and her name is Rodriguez. Right? First time. It's going to happen. We will elect a Latino. Latina, Latino mayor. And at that juncture, I'm hoping that somebody looks back and says, there was a contribution that was made by people in 2001 who came from our community to ensure that this was never allowed to happen again. And that whatever price it cost politically, it was worth it.
Shoe Leather is a production of the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. This episode was reported, written, and produced by me, Will Norris. And me, Nevro. Joanne Farian is our executive producer and professor. Rachel Quester and Peter Leonard are our co-professors. Special thanks to Columbia Digital Librarian Michelle Wilson, Professor Dale Maharaj, Andy Lanza at New York Public Radio, and Mason Lee. Shoe Leather's theme music, Squeegees, is by Ben Lewis, Doran Zunas, and Camille Miller. Remixed by Peter Leonard. Other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Our season three graphic was created by Maria Fernanda Arribes. To learn more about Shoe Leather and this episode, go to our website, shoeleather.org. <laughs>